2: It's times like these, you learn to love again. It's times like these, time, time again. Oh, oh,
1: oh. Welcome to the Outer Limits of Inner Truth Radio Show, OuterLimitsRadio.com. I'm your host, Ryan. This is The Death Show, part three. And it's their second focus on mental health. And I can't emphasize enough that when you are in a place very sad, very depressed, I think you should do whatever you need to do in order to feel better. Do whatever you need to do to heal yourself, to come to a greater understanding of where you are. And sometimes people have this idea, well, you know, I don't want to be judged. Well, I say to hell what everyone else thinks, to hell with worrying about what other people are going to say or think. This is your life. No one knows what you are going through the way you do. No one knows what you're going through right now. Only you. I don't know what you're going through. My heart goes out to you. But please keep that in mind. Keep that in mind that there are all other methods of healing, tons of other methods of evolving and growing. Let us begin tonight's program. Joining us now is Dr. John Huber. He's chairman for Mainstream Mental Health, a nonprofit organization that brings lasting and positive change to the lives of individuals that suffer from mental health issues. He's a clinical psychologist, and he's also host of Mainstream Mental Health Radio. You can learn about him by going to his website at mainstreammentalhealth.org. Dr. Huber, welcome back to the program. And uh, we want to ask you, From your perspective, what are some of the first things that a person can do when they have lost someone close that's going to put them in the greatest position to heal and recover?
2: Well, it's interesting. People tend to respond in one of two different ways. One of them is they start using kind of rational coping mechanisms that that have worked in other situations and the other response is an emotional reaction and neither one of them is necessarily better than the other one because they both can have positive outcomes, but they can also both have negative outcomes. For example, if you use a coping mechanism such as rationalization, intellectualization, you know this person's been suffering for a long time, their pain and suffering is over, you know, that, that can be a way for you to start healing and move forward in your life. But if all you do is you keep dwelling on how horrible the end of that individual's life is, it could be problematic for you. The same as an emotional response where, for example, you know, you you sit back and do the same kind of thing. You start feeling a sense of relief and recovery actually begins to happen but if you start se- sensing that feel- fear or feeling of relief, one of the things you can also do is kind of neglect everything else emotionally in your life because you're finally getting a break, and that can be problematic in your personal relationships and things at work and like that. So
1: do you, what do you think of the comparable differences between treating a depression as a result of losing someone close with antidepressants and not taking them? I mean, do you recommend taking antidepressants? Do you recommend taking some type of medication in order to blunt the pain associated with losing someone close to you?
2: Well, it's interesting. When I have patients who are getting on antidepressants, for example, I always talk to them about the fact that I don't want them to not feel the emotion. I just want them to have better control over that emotion. So if they're in a place where they're not able to function because they're feeling so sad and depressed over the loss of somebody. Medication may help them have that control so they can keep moving forward in their life while through therapy they can process and deal with the the issues associated with loss of that loved one. All
1: right. And what do you think would be some of the best methods of alleviating guilt associated with with losing someone close sometimes people say well i didn't have you know i should have said things to them i didn't say and they have this you know guilt
2: well you know and that that's one of those emotional reactions and that one can get you into some trouble you start dwelling on things like what did i do wrong or could i have done anything different or if i'd only done this or or if i could have done that it would have been different and you know when you live with individuals for any length of time you know you do other things like you say things you regret later and sometimes you're not able to resolve those before that person you know dies or leaves your your life and y- y- you dwell on that and that that is a hard thing to overcome and as a therapist i try to work with the individuals to to help them understand that you know you're not to blame for that individual's death and if they are to blame, they're probably involved in the legal process and are more concerned with that than the loss that they're having at that point. But the reality of it is, you're typically not to blame. And we may have to go through several steps of, of reshaping your perspective, dealing with cognitive uh, clarification, and working through not just the rational side of it, but that emotional side of it also.
1: Speaking of rational and irrational. Responses, when you are in a state of deep depression, I would imagine that not all of your thought process and responses are going to necessarily be rational. They're going to be probably the extremes. Where do you draw the line between knowing that you are responding to a situation in a healthy, irrational way, because you're basically being put to the test in the greatest way possible, dealing with such depression? And what is the line between that and a line where you're going way too far, where you could actually be causing damage to yourself and others?
2: Well, one of the things I warn my patients about doing is making any kind of huge decisions during that, that grief period or that depressed period of time, because it's too easy for us to be flippant about things that are actually very important when we're depressed but we're more wrapped up in the feeling of loss. So, so I, I recommend my clients start working on and resolving smaller issues and see how those work out for them as they graduate up and as they deal with the, the loss itself. And graduate up, I mean by as they start making bigger and bigger decisions, they don't automatically jump to, oh, I'm going to quit my job kind of a thing.
1: Dr. John Huber, Chairman of Mainstream Mental Health and host of Mainstream Mental Health Radio. I want to thank you so much for being with us today. To learn more about Dr. John Huber, please go to his website at MainstreamMentalHealth.org. Thank you so much, Dr. Huber. Joining us now is Ms. Anne-Marie Sosha, Licensed Professional Counselor Associate, Clinical Certified Hypnotherapist, and Neuro-Linguistic Program. You'll learn more about Ms. Anne-Marie by going to her website at WavesOfChangeNC.com. Ms. Sosha. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for being with us today.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Okay. When you are treating someone who is experiencing the shock of losing someone close to them, what are some of the most advanced techniques you can fully utilize at your disposal or that people can utilize at their disposal in order to begin the healing process or accelerate the healing process?
3: Well, there are several techniques and modalities. Some of the ones that I specialize in and certainly there are many more, but the ones that I use are hypnotherapy, mindfulness, meditation, and cognitive behavior therapy. What that really means is I help the person, whether individual or group, tap into their feelings and allow them to grieve because everybody grieves differently. There's no tried and true cut method that you have to do it this way, but help them tap into their feelings, help them express them, help them move through the grief process, whatever that looks like for them, whether it's hypnotherapy. And learning how to relax and and accepting life is going to change and, and dealing with how it alters or doing mindfulness and being in the moment and honing in on what's really happening and how do we feel and how do we move forward. And all of it at the crux of talking about it and really just being there.
1: Right. Is there anything that a person can do to kind of re- restructure their brain in order to minimize or compartmentalize the feelings of anguish that they have when they lose a loved one. Is there anything that they can do to kind of, let's say, make sure that they can take care of nine to five job, take care of their primary obligations without having the extreme pain and suffering of losing someone bleed into that and affect them in their daily lives?
3: There are several things. One of the first things I would say is acknowledge the pain, accept the fact that, you know, there's going to be grief and loss and sadness and take a deep breath and maybe take several deep breaths. Remember the positive. Stay positive. Try to find things that make you happy. And when you have to do the 9 to 5 job, because I know it's tough. You're going to go to work and you've got this loss at home that you're suffering. Maybe a husband died or a wife or even a pet, for example. And, and you're grieving and and allow yourself X amount of time a day to, to let that grief happen. Hypnosis or hypnotherapy is amazing at helping you kind of find your energy and relax and just, be in the moment, and tune into what's going on, but yet find the happier side of it and, and be able sure. to go forward.
1: Now, you specialize in hypnotherapy. Can you hypnotize someone to not feel pain or not experience the pain and suffering of a loss of a loved one? Can, can people have people come to you and ask for that before?
3: People have come and asked me for that. What I generally tell people is I'm not going to guarantee that I will take away the pain completely. I will help minimize it. I will hold their hand as long as it takes to walk through it. I will be there step-by-step step to guide them towards a happier life, a life that's changed and altered in ways that they probably didn't want it to.
1: Okay. Now, if they do, if they are, if you are successful in doing hypnosis and helping them to forget, minimize the pain, is that in one way, shape, or form potentially putting a ticking time bomb within their subconscious that may manifest physically? Because if they don't acknowledge the pain right away or they minimize it, is that something that could long-term hurt them?
3: I don't recommend anybody ever take grief and loss and and try to put it, push it aside and not deal with it. So through hypnotherapy, we would be dealing with it. We would be talking about it, long talk about it in long sentences and long paragraphs to get to the root of it. And then through hypnotherapy, relax them to a point where it's not as traumatic but it's still there because trauma and grief and loss are things that we need to deal with. And just putting more yes, I agree, that could potentially be a ticking time, time bomb because at some point, it's going to come back out, and it's going to be something bigger to deal with, versus okay. dealing with it up front.
1: Well, and just to take a step back in terms yeah. of the grieving process, when you are grieving, what is actually happening uh, from a psychological perspective? What is occurring when you are when you're mourning a loss of someone? Are you, um, what is happening to the body? What is happening to the soul? What is there a prolonged? Is there a certain? step process that a person would have to go through, are there certain goals or markers that a person can kind of track and know where they are at what point during the grieving process?
3: Everybody is different, first off. So anything that I say beyond this is individualized and every person is different. But typically speaking, if you're grieving more than a few weeks, you might want to reach out to someone. If your grief or your loss is taking over your life, physical symptoms, meaning you're crying all the time, you can't get out of bed. You don't want to go to work, you're not eating, you're isolating yourself. If you're doing that for a prolonged period of time, again, a few weeks or more, that's when you need to reach out to a professional therapist and say, I need someone to talk to, or reach out to your clergy or to a trusted friend and say, okay, I need to check in. I think that this is becoming a a concern. If it's a day or two or a couple weeks or less, I wouldn't worry so much. Everybody's got to grieve in their own time frame. But if it's six months and you haven't left your house, there's a problem
1: now are you able to possibly discuss the brainwave frequencies of people who are in extreme suffering or extreme mourning and the reason why I ask that is I'm curious to know if a person does meditate which you are you know you talk a lot about meditation yep, I do. can that actually shift and actually help the person improve their mental well-being can that help them accelerate the grieving process
3: I can tell you I'm not an expert on the brainwave piece of it, but I will tell you that I can alter the state to happier. I know most of my clients can come in and they'll be very stressed. Their heart rate is beating faster. They might have blurry vision. They may feel completely stressed out, whatever that term means to them. And after a session with me, they're calmer, their heart rate is lower, their blood pressure is down to normal. They're able to think and function properly. They don't have blurry vision. They're not panicking, if you will. They're not suffering the grief and loss as dramatically as they did prior to seeing me or working with me personally. And I think that's true for most hypnotherapists.
1: Okay. And what advice would you give to a person who's trying to offer consultation or healing to a person they know is very close to them that has experienced a horrible loss?
3: I would reach out to the person in whatever method they're comfortable with. If it's giving them a hug, holding their hand, having a meal, just sitting and listening. People often just want to be heard. They want to know that someone cares. So if someone's in grief for loss or suffering, just sit next to them and, and let them share with you what they need because everybody needs something different. Commonly I tell people, tell me your story. Tell me what you want to hear. Tell me what... What would make this better for you in the moment other than bringing the person back or the animal back because I can't? What can I give you? What do you need? And and sometimes it's just taking deep breaths with them and letting them just cry. Just be there and let them cry.
1: Ms. Anne-Marie Socha, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. To learn more about Ms. Socha, please go to our website at wavesofchangenc.com. Thank you so much.
3: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
1: Joining us now is Dr. Rick Doblin. He's the founder and executive director of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, otherwise known as MAPS. You can learn more about him by going to the website at MAPS, N A P M A P S dot org. Dr. Doblin, thank you so much for being with us today. And right off he, the bat. Okay,
4: yeah, just thank you for having me. I'm, I'm really glad for this opportunity.
1: Our pleasure. There are people who are experiencing a lot of pain and suffering as a result of experiencing death or losing someone very close to them. How does your organization work and how have marijuana, MDMA, and other psychedelics utilized to help people deal with pain and suffering?
4: Wow, right? that's a great question. Um, Well, MAPS is essentially a non-profit pharmaceutical company trying to develop psychedelics and marijuana into approved prescription medications. And these are drugs that have incredible therapeutic potential but have been abandoned by the pharmaceutical industry and not supported by the federal government and uh, so far not even major foundations. So it's through individuals and family foundations that we've been able to generate support for the research. And what we're doing is trying to understand, based on both the political context and also on the the therapeutic context, how do we move psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy and medical marijuana through the regulatory system? And so what we've focused on is uh, for MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, again, it's, it's not MDMA that's the drug, that's the treatment by itself, it's MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, so there's a larger context of psychotherapy, and what we felt was that the first priority would be post-traumatic stress disorder, that there's a perceived national obligation to veterans and others who are not successfully treated by the currently available medications or psychotherapies. They do work for um, a substantial number of people, but there's uh, too substantial a number of treatment-resistant people. So we, for the last 15 years, have done pilot studies with MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD in Spain, in Israel, in Canada, and throughout the United States. And we're gathering all of that data right now, which is very promising, for a submission to FDA as part of what's called an end-of-phase-two meeting to plan the pivotal phase-three studies. And we currently anticipate um, approval by the FDA in 2021. That's our current timetable. We we also, though, in order to try to start um, the psychedelic renaissance, we're now at a point where there's more psychedelic research than at any point in the last 45 years. Uh, The two symbolic areas where we needed to start research, one was at Harvard where Timothy Leary had been, and that's where people some people say that's where it went off the rails. And then the other was to start research with LSD, as sort of the quintessential psychedelic. And so in both of those cases, we were able to do so in the context of treating people who were anxious about dying, who had life-threatening illnesses. So at Harvard, we were able to start a study with MDMA in cancer patients with
1: anxiety.
4: And in Switzerland, we were able to start a study with LSD for cancer patients and people with other life-threatening illnesses who were anxious about dying. And we've gotten very good results from both the Swiss study and we've now, the U.S. study um, at Harvard, we have only very minimal results. Um, it, it was, um, the study was ended early because it was hard for us to recruit people because we had to say that people had only less than 12 months or, or left to live. And a lot of people didn't want to be in the study um, because of that, they, they felt like that was admitting that they were about to die. Um, so we started another study with MDMA for people with life-threatening illnesses uh, in Santa Anselmo, north of San Francisco. And that study is recruited. A, it's going to be an 18 subjects. We've recruited about half of them. And the early results are very promising. And I think there's two different mechanisms between the classic psychedelics, like LSD, in in working with people that are near the end of life and MDMA. And so with the classic psychedelics, with like LSD, um, you're you're trying to help people have a mystical experience, to, to let go of their fears of death or to explore their fears of death. And then under the influence of LSD, people often have this sense of connection, this deeper sense of unity, this transcendence of time and space, they, they kind of realize that, you know, it's not just our individual biography, that, that we're the product of billions of years of, you know, evolution and that, that you're part of this bigger thing and that death is a natural part of it that you don't need to be scared of. So the, the work with the classic psychedelics with people facing end of life is more about this mystical experience that helps people focus on enjoying the time that they still have instead of sort of mourning the time they're not going to have. And with MDMA for people near the end of life or who are worried about life-threatening illnesses, it's more about a reduction in the fear and anxiety about that. But MDMA is very relational. It opens up, it stimulates oxytocin and prolactin, hormones of nurturing and bonding. It opens up um, people's sense of connection with people in their lives. And it stimulates loving feelings. And so people who are anxious about dying, a lot of times what they really want to do is have the conversations with their loved ones that they've been unable to have so far and sort of settle up their lives. And, and there's also a, an unusual op, um, property of MDMA that makes it really good for a hospice setting. And that's where you start talking about real pain is that MDMA is, is a drug that synergizes really well with opiates for pain medication. And what we find is that in the hospice setting, a lot of people are so in pain that they're so medicated that they're barely there at all. They're tranquilized and and they just sort of drift towards death. But when you combine MDMA with the opiates, what happens is the stimulant properties of MDMA wake people up. And then MDMA also reduces pain, so you get better pain control. You need fewer opiates, and people are alert and open-hearted. So we've we've seen situations, not in formal research settings, but where, where people have gone on and tried this anyway on their own, that within days of people's death, they're able to really recapitulate their whole relationship with loved ones and have these miraculous moments. Of sharing that that transforms this whole process and it's sort of I you know it emerges out of being a tragedy to being a celebration
1: Uh, now what about people dr. Doblin who are who are the friends and relatives of the person who's dying when they are experiencing a severe trauma of losing a loved one how does something like MDMA or another psychedelic drug when properly administrated, be utilized to accelerate their healing process or accelerate their understanding of what has happened and put them on a trajectory of a healthy mental recovery from such a severe loss?
4: Well, um, that's also a great question. Now, um, MDMA can help people in the grieving process. And sometimes grief can become so difficult for people that, it almost becomes post-traumatic stress disorder. The, the people, you know, remember the person that died, that they're always feeling sad. They cannot really fully grieve and they can't really fully move on. And so MDMA helps people to let those emotions out and to fully cry and fully grieve the, the loss. And then also people can then celebrate the life and, you know, really feel like, there's an element of you know the relationship that they had with the person that will never die that they will always have their memories so the the challenge though is that in the current system of prohibition trying to make a drug into a medicine we have to work with diseases diagnoses that are in DSM 4 that are in DSM 5 now that we we have to treat um you know, specific illnesses. So for somebody that's heart sick at the loss of a loved one, unless it turns into, you know, clinical anxiety or depression or PTSD or something, we can't make a medicine to treat them because it's not a a clearly defined disorder. So that's the challenge, but we're making a major progress in a study that we're about to start next month with post-traumatic stress disorder with MDMA and there's a therapist that have been aligned with the veterans administration and they've developed an approach called cognitive behavioral conjoint therapy. So conjoint means couple. So it's a therapy for the couple where one member of the couple has PTSD, but the PTSD affects the relationship. And we've been able to get permission from FDA, from even DEA and the institutional review board to give both members of the couple MDMA. So uh, the person that has PTSD is part of a study to make uh, PTSD into a medicine. And the person who is the couple the who does not have PTSD, they're part of a scientific study looking at uh, the relationship and how this uh, relationship has changed through these MDMA experiences. So we can imagine that one day that could be expanded to – people who are anxious about dying, because as as you said, it really affects the whole family and the whole circle of loved ones. And other people need to to go through this grieving process as well. And while they're not themselves immediately dying, um, there's a lot of difficult emotions for them as well. And it makes sense to give um, not just the person who's dying MDMA, but to, to do it in a family setting. So that's going to take us a while to get to that point. But I I do think that over time, we're going to be developing MDMA and other drugs into prescription medicines. They'll be administered by trained therapists in special psychedelic clinics, and it will be initially just for the patients, but then it'll expand out to include the families as well.
1: Do you feel in any way, shape, or form that the factor of big pharmaceutical companies missing out on a big profit could be a reason why your work or this activity has not been developed quicker? Because if you have something that can help a lot of people in a very quick fashion, wouldn't it undermine a lot of these other pills that are out there that maybe would have the effect over a longer period of time? Do you feel that in some way, shape, or form, medical innovation is a deterrent um, towards allowing this to happen, to become full uh, fruition.
4: Well, not exactly the way you said it. Um, I think that right now, from a regulatory point of view, we're able to get permission for psychedelic psychotherapy research all over the world. So there are no fundamental regulatory hurdles to doing that. But from the pharmaceutical point of view, They don't really understand psychotherapy. They understand medication, but they don't understand psychotherapy. And the psychedelic drugs and marijuana also are in the public domain. With the psychedelics, they're not the treatment by itself. It's psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy. So the pharmaceutical industry just doesn't look at this as a profit center because the drugs are in the public domain. That's why we're doing nonprofit
1: drug development
4: also because of the political controversy and also because um, really they just don't understand this mixture of pharmacotherapy and psychotherapy. But I think your your main point, though, is will these drug-assisted psychotherapies, once they're approved, offer an alternative to the daily pills that the pharmaceutical company offers for PTSD, for anxiety, for depression? The answer to that, I think, is yes, that for some people... Psychedelic assisted psychotherapy will be a preferred treatment option. And in some significant number of cases, it will address the problem sufficiently so that people don't need daily psychiatric medication.
1: That's really great. And can you see your work um, when it becomes, or as it becomes, more accepted on a mainstream level? Being a, a great asset to humanity or being a means to have people live their lives happier and not deal with such post-traumatic stress disorder, not only from experiencing the death of a loved one, but uh, from a traumatic event that they may have had in their life otherwise.
4: Definitely, because what we see now around the world is uh, traumatic popula- traumatized populations and multi-generational trauma. We're understanding more and more about epigenetics, how... While, you know, changing the actual genes is through mutations is a longer time frame. In one generation, the epigenetics is about the, what genes are turned on and turned off. And that can change within and be passed on from one generation to the next. And so if we can interrupt these cycles of multi-generational trauma, I think the legitimation of psychedelic medicine Um, for treating ptsd can have a major impact on helping humanity because we can help people stop coming from such a traumatized place and maybe make peace in certain situations where they're just trained to hate the other and to make war but i do think and this is the bigger issue and this is why i'm really focused on this work is in order to help humanity because of what we just said before that that you know, we can only make drugs into medicines for clinically diagnosable conditions. What we need is a ability to work with people who are not diagnosed with it, an indication, but who are um, open to global spirituality, who are open to deeper understandings that are not clinically, psychiatrically ill, but might be you know scared of the other or too rigid in their beliefs or might want to just be exploring and i think that the classic psychedelics have been used for thousands of years to facilitate religious experiences and that these experiences tend not to produce fundamentalists but they tend to produce people who see the fundamental unity of everybody that the people will have more tolerance for people who are not like themselves and I think we're all engaged in this birth and death cycle. We're all trying to figure it out. You know, we all have more in common than we have different. And so I think the benefit for humanity, um, Albert Einstein said that our technology has exceeded our humanity. And I think if we look around with the problems with global warming, with the problems with nuclear weaponry, um, you know, that we really have a incredible advancement of technology and of intellectual sophistication, but we don't have, as individuals and as a species, the emotional and spiritual maturity to cope with our technological achievements. And therefore, we need a large-scale advancement and a, a, a more spiritual approach, less greedy, more compassionate, more sympathetic to others. And I think psychedelics can play a major role in bringing that about, and we, we saw that in large part in the 60s in a small subgroup of people who were motivated to work on environmental movements, work against the Vietnam War, work in social justice movements and civil rights movements. You know, we, The classic, of course, is John Lennon, All You Need Is Love. That's a song he wrote after he took LSD. So that we have this social transformation that's happening anyway because of technology, the globalization, but some people are retreating into fundamentalism as they're confronting other peoples, other religious systems. And some groups are becoming more rigid, but others are becoming more open. And I think the introduction of psychedelics in a legal way in our context, where people can have support for these experiences, can have a major impact on the, the thriving of the human species.
1: Uh- Dr. Rick Doblin, I want to thank you so much for being with us today and for sharing your insight. I know you're very busy, but uh, I want to tell you I really enjoyed having you on. To learn more about Dr. Doblin, please go to the website at maps, dot org. Thank you so much, Dr. Doblin.
4: Great. Thank you, Ryan. It's uh, great questions that you ask, very challenging and difficult questions and important ones.
1: Thank you. Joining us now is Modern Intuitive Therapist, Miss Beth Miller you can learn more about Miss Beth Miller by going to her website at bethmillermeditations.com Miss Miller Yes when you are working with people welcome to the show first off and when you are working with people who are suffering and grieving from the loss of a loved one what are some of the ways that you feel are effective not only for you to console them but other ways for people to console their their family and friends who are enduring the loss of a loved one.
5: Mm, That's a really good question, yes, and thank you for having me. So one of the things we have to do with um, people that are grieving and going through a difficult time after loss of someone or something is give them a lot of space to feel how they feel without thrusting a lot of expectations on them about how they should feel or how they should get over it. Um, Everybody's timeline for grief is different, and usually it ebbs and flows. It kind of moves like an uncontrollable roller coaster for a while. And what people mostly need is somebody to listen with compassion and not use words like should, should not, or that they should move on, but just to really be present with them.
1: Okay. And you've incorporated, in some cases, angels, angels, guides when you're working with people is that correct yes okay so when you are when you're suffering when you're enduring the loss of love and how do your angels and guides come to you and are you likely to get a visual or more uh, kinesthetic feeling of their presence when mm-hmm. you are at these very low points
5: mm-hmm so, so I find something really interesting happens, which is I'll have a client that's coming in modern intuitive therapy combined psychotherapy with life coaching, energy healing, science, spirituality. It's sort of all of those things in one. And somebody will come see me for grief or maybe for some other issue that we're working on on in person or over the phone. And um, I can feel my guides and my angels pretty quickly because I can I can hear them and I can also feel them on my body. So I feel them play with my hair. They become very present on my skin. I know that they're around me. They make noise in my ear. That lets me know to pay close attention. And I always ask my guides to communicate with the other person's guides so that I give the highest form of a reading to them and psychotherapeutic advice to them instead of coming from my own ego. I think that's super important. I'd rather have the counsel come from a higher source than from me. Um, But one of the things that I think is super cool is that somebody might come in with an issue. Let's say, for instance, I had one of my clients who was struggling with this question. She said, am I good enough? What should I do next? How should I move forward? And her father came to me during the session to answer those questions. So he has never shown up in session before. And I'd worked with her many times, but he showed up that day to help her with those questions. And he gave her advice on them because that's what she was struggling with and that's what he could help her with. It's
1: pretty amazing. And what would you say, if it's possible to identify four signs of healthy grieving and four signs of unhealthy grieving? Mm
5: Mm-hmm. Where you're
1: not not following proper things.
5: Okay. So healthy grieving is crying, talking a lot about the person, um, talking a lot about what happened, questioning it. Like, I don't understand. This seems so strange. How did this happen? Being confused and disoriented by it um, and not being able to move on right away. That's really healthy. Um, unhealthy grieving would be to try to avoid it entirely, to not think about it at all, Um, to be drinking, drugging, using alcohol, sex, lots of work, distractions, to not feel at all. It's not that... You can't use distractions. It's okay to use them to some degree. But if that's your main coping method, then you definitely want to go speak to someone that's going to help you to feel your feelings and be with them in kind of uh, small and compartmentalized ways instead of getting flooded by
1: them. Okay. When you are doing that, if that is one means for you to do it, could that, theoretically speaking, be a... A temporary means of survival that you can't face it that the grief could be so overwhelming that at that point in your life you don't have the capability of experiencing the, the full magnitude of the situation and if that's the case can that actually be a healthy means because if you accept it full fudge on it could actually theoretically speaking destroy you
5: well yes what I'll, I'll say this human beings are extremely resilient they're extraordinary Most of us doubt our ability to cope with pain, but we actually can do it. And and we show great agility in being able to do it when we're willing to sit with it and face it. Can distractions in small doses be a really important part of psychic survival for a while? Without a doubt. However, that can't go on forever and it shouldn't. Because that means you're not going to actually juice from the experience the waste you're going to grow from the grief the ways that you're going to expand from it, and also the ways that you're going to expand and grow from the life of the person that passed. You know, their life and also their death is in great service to all of us if we pay attention to it and we look for the purposes, the purpose and the meaning of what their life had and also even in their death.
1: All right. And if you don't acknowledge or come to terms with, Uh, let's say the loss and you are using all these means of distracting. How is that going to affect your life in the long term? And do you actually risk developing split personality where you're basically becoming two or three different people or even actually going down the path of the schizophrenic because of that, because you're avoiding it?
5: Mm, Okay. So I would say in almost every case, probably not. Um, Becoming having multiple personality disorder or what's considered a dissociative disorder, um, or being schizophrenic has a lot of other factors to it besides just grieving, and just having a hard time coping with grieving. Grieving is so hard on us that we will try to do anything we can to avoid it, but m- most likely we wouldn't create other personalities that that. Those those two really are, don't have a lot of cause, cause and effect there. Um, I don't think that's something to worry about. I think instead what would happen is that you'd get more and more and more disengaged from your own life. You wouldn't be able to feel life, the highs and the lows of it, all the finesse of life anymore, the joy of life, because you're disconnecting from it. And then you have another thing to grieve, which is that you're not living your own life anymore either. And so the only way to go through hell is to go through hell. And I think the one thing that people have to remember is they've already experienced the worst of it, which is the original pain of what's happened. But to then find ways to cope with it and come to peace with it, to be able to radically accept it, those are things that they're skills and tools that they can be taught to do. And also, energy healing like EFT is super helpful because it can help take the edge off of the grieving and make it much easier to cope with.
1: All right. And we are talking about thinking about chakras. What happens to a person's chakra system when they experience the initial shock of the loss of a loved one and if you are going to be working on someone or a person is going to be working upon themselves are there any particular chakras you recommend balancing and healing first and making that a top priority and mm-hmm. uh, building things from there
5: yeah top priority is your first chakra um when you experience something as disorienting as like a traumatic death or something that's very jarring in your life you're going to get ungrounded. You're not going to be grounded in, in, in yourself, in your own body. You'll probably be a little dissociated for a while. Those are normal parts of grief. And so your first chakra is the one that provides that feeling of safety and being tethered by the umbilical cord of life. Um, and that, that'll get knocked out of balance. So, okay. What's the
1: first chakra's name, though? Is there a certain name for its it? Is it the, the, where is it located?
5: The, the, the first chakra is the sacral chakra. So, I mean, the root chakra also. It's called, commonly called the root chakra. It's at the base of the spine. Okay. The color of it is red. So that's, that chakra will get you know imbalanced by that so one of the best things that you can do for the first chakra when you feel unsafe in life you feel like the material world is an unsafe place to be there's been death is to um, go outside and walk among trees take your shoes off if you can walk in the grass your feet being rounded on uh, in the soil or on grass is incredibly effective being among trees that have a very grounding chi I mean, they are literally grounded by roots, is extremely effective. It's like it'll do the work for you.
1: It's interesting you said that a very uh, close friend of ours, he had recommended that you go against a tree and you put your head, the top of your head against the tree, Mm -hmm. and he said the tree will cleanse your crown chakra. It'll go through and cleanse you and clear you. I don't know if that's something that would would, resonate.
5: Absolutely, without a doubt. If you're willing to, and and I'm willing to do this and I think it's super effective, if you're willing to literally hug a tree, also you could put your back up against the tree and sit up against it or actually place your chest up against the tree and hug it. Trees are extraordinary in that they really are great friends of ours. They provide our ability to breathe, and they provide an incredible service to us. But one of the things they have is such a powerful tree that they will absolutely ground us, and if you hug a tree, they uh, they will cleanse you.
1: Okay. Now, I want to come back to one thing we touched upon earlier, which is the difference between healthy grieving an unhealthy grieving mm-hmm. and I bring this to your attention um, because I feel like in my life when I've been at a low point or I've experienced suffering these the biggest jerks in the world I, I tended to meet around these periods of time mm-hmm. and I'm wondering if lower astral entities tend to gravitate towards people who are grieving and try to push them and to drive them in really Cause of a lot of unnecessary pain and I'll give you an example of this a person could be experiencing a tremendous amount of guilt or suffering over something that could be something that they may not necessarily be responsible for mm-hmm. and I'm wondering if you if that's something you have Experienced and I'm wondering how people could actively protect themselves from any other outside force that would try to seize upon their grieving and kind of make their grieving uh, an etheric meal I
5: Wow. Um, Do I think that happens? Yes, I do. Um, I also think that when people are in a, a, a lower or darker place that their energy is like a boomerang. And so the world around them is going to mirror back to them how they're feeling. and That's what they're going to attract into their life. So unwittingly, it's not just that those beings might be seeking them out, but unwittingly they're also attracting people like that to them. Um and and also it's really difficult to be around positive people when you feel really low. And so you want you're, you're gonna sort of unconsciously want to be around other people that are in the, the same kind of space you are. Um so my suggestion, though I think this is kind of hard for people that are grieving to do but my suggestion is to do a pretty simple exercise where um, everyday you actually fill yourself up with light from the inside. I think this is one of the best protection methods that you can use um, instead of just creating sort of a an orb of light around you which is to keep things from coming in. I'd rather have people saturate themselves with light from the inside. So I just ask them to grab a piece of uh, universal beautiful consciousness in the form of golden light to place it inside their chest And then every time they breathe in to let that light expand until it saturates every cell, every atom, every organ in their body down to the tips of their toes, up to the crown of their head. And if you're fully saturated with light, nothing can come in because there's no room
1: for it. Dr. Beth Miller, I want to thank you so much. I really thought you had a lot and you had a lot of great insight. Thank you. And to learn more about Ms. Beth Miller... Please go to our website at BethMillerMeditations.com. Thank you so much.
5: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Joining us now is Michelle Beckhart, licensed psychotherapist, hypnotherapist, who specializes also in past life regression. You can learn more about Ms. Beckhart by going to her website at MichelleBeckhart.com. That's M-A-C-H-E-L-L-B-E-K-A-E-R-T.com. Ms. Beckhart, welcome to the program, and thank you for being with us today.
0: Thank you. It's my honor to be here.
1: Thank you. When you are working with someone who's experienced a tremendous loss, loss went to death, what are some of the first things that you will do to work with that person to put them on the road to recovery and to begin their healing process?
0: Well, at first, I talk to them about giving them permission to, to grieve, um, to feel sad, to not feel normal for a while. And so many of my clients who have lost them and dear to them feel that they should just be getting over this and, um, and you know, that life moves on and they take a few days off work and then the rest of the world forgets that they are in grief. and. It's important to um, be kind to oneself, to reach out to friends and family members who are supportive, and just to allow the emotions when they come up, whether it's sadness or anger, depression, we have to remember that those emotions are stored in our bodies. And so it's important to let those emotions flow out as they come up. Because as we try to talk ourselves out of them or tell ourselves, we really shouldn't be feeling that. We should be over this by now. Those emotions get stored in our physical bodies and can they, and then they just grow. And then we come to a point where we not only won't allow ourselves to feel the sadness or the negative feelings, but we're not able then to experience our positive emotions like joy and happiness.
1: Okay, so by repressing these or not dealing with this, how? what are some examples of these uh, feelings seeping into our daily waking life without us knowing it?
0: Um, we start to feel numb. We start to just lose interest. We discover that we um, don't feel... Um, or experience the love from other family members or friends or, or members of our support network. Um, We might just start feeling angry. um, And that's often what happens. We'll start feeling angry and irritable and we don't know why. And often when that irritability comes, it's just sitting on top of a whole pile of sadness that needs to come out. So, Watch We watch for the irritability and that numbness, that feeling of, I can't feel anything at all anymore, really should be a signal to us that we're suppressing. We're suppressing the emotions and those feelings that need to come out.
1: All right. And when you're talking with people, they're probably trying to figure out why. Why could something horrible happen? Why did it have to happen to me? When you talk with them, do you look at and, at and tell them that there's an external force that is responsible, a collective consciousness or supreme being that is responsible for orchestrating all things, or do you relate to patients that these are actions of everyone's initial doing? Like, how would it, what is your perspective on that?
0: My perspective on that is that we are all soul, and that as soul, we choose our life circumstances before we incarnate into a lifetime so as soul we choose what lessons we are to learn what qualities we are to acquire in a particular lifetime Mm -hmm. um, what souls that we are going to incarnate with and what lessons we are going to learn or provide for them And we choose when and how we die. And after doing hundreds of past life regressions and life between life regressions, as I've guided my clients through the death scene, um, in every single circumstances or every single circumstance, they have felt a feeling of extreme peace and love when soul leaves their body. Um, They are guided um, to a place that's filled with love and acceptance and may meet with their soul family. Um, So the, the idea of this is some random act that wasn't there, if we can let go of that notion and recognize that this loved one this soul has completed their journey here. They've graduated. They've done what they were here to do, and they have chosen to leave. We can honor that. Um, We can make this a celebration rather than this is unfair. How could this happen to me? Somebody, um, Somebody outside themselves decided to make this happen and God is so unfair um, so
1: yeah. well I, I mean, there's something we talked about at the beginning of the show where I guess some of the common things people say is oh you know you lost so-and-so but they're in a better place I want to tell you from my personal perspective I love being with my family and I don't care how wonderful heaven could be or how I have all these soul families, I don't think that there's any better place in the universe than me with my family. It's probably the the, uh, the fruitiest thing anyone will ever hear me say, but it's the truth. Mm-hmm. So this idea that we say that they're in a better place, is that necessarily true? Is the reality, can some people say, listen, the best place that they could possibly be in is in their physical body with their loved ones or doing some devious act that they're very happy doing?
0: Well, you know, I think that feeling that the best place any soul can be is with the family they've chosen in this lifetime. It's sort of a narrow perspective, and I don't want to say selfish because it's not selfish in the sense that we feel as the, the person who ha- has lost the one we loved we feel this huge hole in our heart, this huge hole in our life. But we have to recognize that that family member or friend, that lost loved one, is moving on to a place now where they can continue their soul's evolution. So they're continuing. They're going to a place where they, they can continue to grow to grow and evolve and learn as soul, um, perhaps in their next incarnation or incarnations. So we have to ask ourselves, is really the best place for them to continue here with their family and loved ones where perhaps they have completed their mission, they've learned their lessons, they um, have completed their purpose here, and now it's time for them to start their next journey and continue to evolve.
1: Okay. Why would we have to come and go through a physical form to experience unconditional love if our origin is that of unconditional love? And apparently the spiritual realms, a lot of us celestial ones, are pure unconditional love. So why would we need to come to a physical body to learn or to appreciate unconditional love when many of us probably already do? I can't imagine a single being that would be immersed in unconditional love could not see that and recognize and say, Hey, that's fantastic. Why would we need to come into a physical body to understand that?
0: Well... That's a really good question. And my answer to that is that where on the other side where there's there's complete unconditional love, we don't get practice in dealing in coping with any sort of adversity. So say a soul is born and my understanding of this is that they they come from a place where everything is playful and loving. Um, but there's really no not much of a sense of responsibility. So they come here first to the physical plane where things are very, very dense um, and our, their thoughts don't manifest. And their their initial lesson here is, um, learning to survive and learning to cope with ad- adversity. Because wherever we go, there is going to be that. We have to learn to manage those emotions that come um, with being in a physical body, like anger, like sadness, like resentment, like jealousy. Um, those
5: are
0: our states of being that we need to learn to resolve and release in order to grow a soul. So you see, what I'm saying is that all souls, when they come here, don't have that understanding or haven't developed that quality of unconditional love. And so they um, may come in with um, a sense of, anger, or um, greed, or whatever it is. So souls evolve and evolve and evolve um, as they deal with adversity in difficult situations and also very loving situations to really gain those qualities on a soul level, if that makes
1: sense. Uh, Speckhardt, when you're doing hypnosis sessions, is there a possibility that a conscious being, a person... Can actually have a correspondence with their higher self and change the game plan for which they came into this life incarnation because I think when you are in a physical body you sense and understand up close and personal pain and pleasure probably in a way that your higher self can't comprehend because its focal point may not be in the physical body where your conscious uh, waking conscious is that being said can you renegotiate the terms for which you've come into this life for with your higher self? Can you decide and say, look, we're going to learn these lessons. We're not going to learn them in pain. We'll take a, the longer way home. We'll learn them in a more peaceful terms. Do you have the freedom and the capability of renegotiating those terms with your higher self?
0: Well, that's a really good question. and Thank you. My just intuitively with that, I do believe that if we acquire the quality that we are, one of the qualities that we have come to learn, then we can possibly, I wouldn't call it renegotiate. and But on a soul level, we always have free will. So in every experience that we go through is sort of a spiritual test. And so say we pass a particular test and, and acquire the skill or ability um, in a situation that doesn't require much pain. It usually, though, very much requires trust and risk. And we pass that test, then we we may not need to go to um, or go through a situation that brings pain um, because we've already acquired it through our trust in ourselves and spirit and our willingness to take risks. So yes, things can change with our free will. I think that we experience more pain and more difficulties when we allow fear to control us. Um, and then it's when we don't do what we need to do because of fear-based beliefs or fear of taking risks, it's like then the universe or then um, soul or our guidance spirit, you know, might give us a little, you know, pinch or knock on the head and say, well, okay, um if, if that's not going to work, we're going to bring you a biggie. And so the challenges could get bigger and more painful as we fail to um, to move on with with the tests or um, the tests that are given us. You know, each little one is, I don't want to say a failure, but if it's brought to you and you respond based on fear. Well, then the next one more, may be more difficult. So, yes, I do think um, that we can renegotiate, and that is based on our willingness and trust to to go forward and take the risks, and um, and always choose. Based on love rather than fear.
1: Excellent, Miss Michelle Beckhart, licensed hypnotherapist, licensed therapist, past life regression expert. I want to thank you so much for being with us today. And to learn more about Miss Beckhart, please go to her website at michellebeckhart.com. Thank you so much, Miss Beckhart.
0: Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here.
1: Joining us now is Dr. Gaini De Silva. She. Is a child and adolescent psychiatrist. Learn more about it by going to her website at ligodafamily. dot com. Dr. De Silva when you are experiencing a tremendous amount of emotional pain, especially when you've lost someone close, especially when you're in a depression, what are some of the things that you recommend that you do to optimize your physical health? Are there things that you can do naturally that will increase your mood, whether by food, whether by exercise? What are some of your recommendations?
6: Absolutely. You know, when you're depressed or uh, grieving a loss, it takes a gigantic toll on your body and your mind. So the first thing I tell people is to take care of the basics. You've got to take care of uh, your basic health, uh, meaning, uh, you know, get out of bed, brush your teeth, wash your face, take a shower, take care of all of that, keeping yourself clean and uh, ready for the day and then to pay attention to your nutrition so all the basics of nutrition eat breakfast make it nutritional uh don't just eat a grab a donut or uh, or skip breakfast or skip oh, your what if ice
1: covered donut isn't that doesn't that will not make you happy in the short term because if i if i <laughs> give the choice between oatmeal a donut i choose the donut always
6: well yeah <laughs> if, you know well but if you're depressed you know, that sugar can cause inflammation and make it even harder to manage your emotions and regulate your emotions. So especially when you're going through such a hard uh, time as being bereaved, uh, a donut, you know, here and there may be okay, but just make sure you're getting all of your nutrition. So add a slice of ham with that uh, donut or uh, maybe a little bit of that oatmeal also or an orange with your donut so that you get some nutritional uh, calories and um, quality in there. And, and make sure you have some snacks that are healthy and lunch and dinner.
1: So, we, and what about uh, exercise? Is that important as well even if you're not, say for example, you're not really into exercise. I mean, should you start doing it anyway? Does that have a, a positive effect on your mental health?
6: Absolutely, so any kind of movement, you wanna keep your body and your mind healthy and that helps to regulate your emotions. It's like a, a triad, emotional um, well-being, your spiritual well-being, your mind and your and your body. So, um, yeah, any kind of exercise. I wouldn't jump into a whole big exercise program when you're grieving, um, but get out and take a walk with your friends. Um, uh, walk even uh, down the street take your dog out for a walk, just so you're getting some movement in. Yoga is fantastic for depression and anxiety. It actually has a great uh, evidence base for um, treating anxiety and um, depression. So and yoga can be practiced with other people. You get out there into a studio. Uh, there's a lot of feel-good uh, vibes, you know, when you're practicing yoga with other people in a studio, and it actually helps you uh, feel better.
1: Awesome. And the final question I have you is what would you say would be your best piece of advice for pulling yourself out of a deep depression?
6: Well, um, actually, several pieces of advice. One is to understand that the grieving process is a process, that it's not just going to um, – uh, be taken care of immediately it's not like you're going to go from one day you're grieving and the next day you're happy you'll have uh, feelings lots of different feelings feelings of grief of anger of sadness of denial of negotiating and all of that takes time it takes its own time so maybe the best piece of advice um, is to allow yourself to grieve take care of yourself while you're grieving and allow for that process to occur and it could take quite some time and get help Get help if you really uh, get stuck in feeling depressed and sad. Get go out, talk to your friends. Go for grief counseling. Go to grief groups. Get a therapist. Um, if you start to have like other physical problems associated with depression, like clinical depression, see a psychiatrist. You can take an antidepressant, and um, and feel healthier.
1: Dr. Gani Desilva. Yes. I want to thank you so much for being with us today to learn about but Dr. Desilva. Please go to our website at LagunaFamily.com. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, everyone, that concludes Part 3 of The Death Show. Special thanks to our esteemed mental health professionals. The next part in The Death Show is going to focus on what you can do for others. Hope you continue to listen. To little more about the Outer Limits of In Radio Show, please go to our website at OuterLimitsRadio.com.
4: Goldman McCormick VR, also a specialist in website development, radio show creation, press conferences, media training, and so much more. Check out
1: GoldmanMcCormick.com for more information. GoldmanMcCormick.com.